0: Since you have your copy of God's Word this morning, let's turn together to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, we're taking a pause just for this week uh, in light of Easter uh, from our series through the book of Matthew. And this morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, we're going to be looking at verses 33 through 43. Luke chapter 23, verses 33 through 43. If you found your way there, let's stand up and read together. We're actually going to start there in verse 32. It says, Two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with Him. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified Him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also this inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews." One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But The other answered and rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you today you shall be with me in paradise. You can be seated. This morning, I want us to take a few moments and compare and contrast the two men that we find here mentioned in this story. There are two men here, criminals, the scripture tells us, that were being taken along to be crucified alongside of Jesus. So we picture this moment happening, right? There's these two criminals alongside of Jesus, three crosses hanging up there on the side of this hill, this place called the skull. Now, it's interesting for many people, they assume that if you go to travel to Jerusalem, there are places that you go to visit where the crucifixion took place or supposedly took place. Now, here's the interesting thing is we really don't know where Jesus's crucifixion took place. Uh, The places that are mentioned there, if you go to Jerusalem today and visit there, that is one possibility, but we don't know for certain that that is the place. What we do know for certain is that wherever it took place, it was a place that was a highly publicly visible spot because this is what the Romans wanted to do. They wanted to make sure that when crucifixions took place, that they took place in a a way that everyone saw what was happening. They were using crucifixion as a way really to hold back the tide of, of behavior in the people. Uh, crucifixion was one of the most horrendous types uh, of of capital punishment that existed it was reserved really for only the most heinous of crimes. So we can understand who these two men were. Uh, these were two men who had who had committed a, a really many people believe, had committed some type of treason against the Roman government. Uh, many commentators believe that perhaps these two men were Jewish patriots who were attempting to, to, to cause some type of overthrow against the Roman government in order to get the Romans out of Jerusalem. And so these two men had been brought here to be punished by this act of crucifixion. Many of people also believe that these two co-conspirators here were probably a part of Barabbas's team, uh, of of criminals, if you remember back in the scriptures, as Pilate was attempting to get Jesus released, he came up with this idea. It was common practice for them every year to release one prisoner to the public. They would at the there at the time of Passover and afterwards they would release one prisoner. And so Pilate, in his mind, thought, "Okay, here's this man Jesus, who I don't see he's really done anything wrong." In my mind, he's not really done anything. All the thing he's done has, has offended the scribes and the Pharisees. But as far as a capital offense, a punishable offense, he's done nothing wrong. And so in Pilate's mind, he said, I'll bring Jesus up here, and then I'll find the worst of the criminals that we have. I'll find Barabbas. And he brings Barabbas out, and Barabbas was a notorious criminal. And he brings him out and remembers, who would you like to have? And the people cried out, give us Barabbas. And so Barabbas was released and Jesus went to the cross, and this is why many commentators believe that these two men were perhaps co-conspirators alongside with Barabbas, and the the cross that Jesus is crucified on was the cross that was eventually going to be Barabbas's had he also been crucified. So these were crimes worthy of death. And when we talk about crucifixion, we know what it means. We know it means to be hung onto a cross, but I wanted to spend just a couple of moments talking about what crucifixion looked like, because it's important for us to understand the severity of what was taking place here when Jesus died, when he went to the cross, because Jesus not only experienced the spiritual side of this, but even the physical side as well. When someone was condemned to be crucified, before they even made it to the punishment of the cross, they were often taken out and whipped beforehand. And we've read in the scripture of the cat of nine tails, which was a long leather whip. It had nine strings on it of, made of leather. And the, each one of those strings were tied pieces of glass and bone. And they would take the criminals out and they would beat them across the back with this cat of nine tails. And you can imagine that as each one of those pieces of, leather and stone, or of stone and glass would grab the flesh and they would rip it back out, it just tore the flesh open of the back of this person. So, even before they would make it to this horrible act of crucifixion, their bodies were already beaten and bruised and cut open to the sense that, that many people, they say some people didn't even make it to the cross. They would die from the blood loss and the trauma even before they got there. So, then they would be forced to carry their cross all the way there as a say, sign of, of shame and really mocking them as they would lead them to the crowd through this place of crucifixion. And when they got there, they would put the crossbeam down on the ground and they would lay the person out and they would take. Nails and drive them through their hands. Now, we often talk about hands, and it wouldn't have been so much in the palm of the hand uh, because the palm of the hand is a very weak part of the body. And as the strength and the weight of the person who's hanging on the cross pulled down, it would just pull through the flesh, so they would actually drive the nail right here into the wrist of the hand. As they did that, they would stretch this person out, drive these nails through there, and then they would bend their legs and put a nail, a single nail, through both of their feet. And the reason they did that uh, was to cause the person to be able to be able to breathe. Once they were on the cross, they would have to push against that nail and to stand up to try to get weight and to get a, the ability to be able to breathe again. They had really devised, again, as I said earlier, the most cruel and barbarous form of capital punishment. And this is what these two men were being crucified for. And again, this is what Jesus was being crucified alongside of them. So you have two men being... Crucified here for appropriate reasons. They had committed capital offenses against Rome, and they were being crucified. But you also have another man here. And it's interesting if we think about it. These men had had committed horrible crimes. And this man here, although in the eyes of the scribes and the Pharisees, they're having him crucified because he had rebelled against their traditions. He had caused issues with, with their power and with their prestige. They didn't like the, the fact that he was gaining more and more influence inside of the community, and so they wanted him gone. They were, they were crucifying him for the sense that they thought he was blaspheming God. But really what we have here is a man who's being crucified for crimes far more vile than even the criminals had committed. Crimes far more heinous than even these criminals had committed because Jesus was there being crucified for our sins. He was bearing the burden and the weight of our sins upon Himself. So even though it wasn't realized by all those who were there in the moment, He was taking upon Himself the punishment for all of our sins. And to understand this, what we see is what we find in the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 53, where it says that Jesus, the Messiah, will be numbered among the transgressors. You can only imagine it would have been very difficult in in the times of of the prophets in the Old Testament as they're hearing about the Messiah and the coming one who would be the Savior of of Jerusalem and the Savior of the Jewish people. You almost wonder how could our Messiah, how could he be numbered among the transgressors? How could he be numbered among the criminals? Remember what the angel said to, to Mary when he came to her and told her that she was going to have a son. He said, you shall name his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. So these two men are the ones that I want to contrast this morning. These two criminals dying on the either side of Jesus there in this place. They're all suffering the same punishment, the same act of crucifixion. It says crucified one on the right and the other on the left, and there Jesus is in the center. So the first thing that I want you to notice about these two men is their responses. We see two Different types of responses from these men. Go back with me to the other part of of, of verse 35. It says, "...and the people stood by looking on." These crucifixions were public events. Everybody would come out to see what was taking place. This was common practice in those times. I mean, we don't see this so much in, in our day, right? When when they have a a punishment for a capital offense, if they're they're putting somebody uh, either through lethal injection or the electric chair in the places where they do that, they don't hold and make these public events anymore. But even as far as the the 20th century, uh, public hangings and events and things like that were still commonplace. So the people would come out to watch these events. And as this was taking place, the rulers, the scribes and the Pharisees were were really mocking and blaspheming Christ as He came by it, even as He was being nailed to the cross, and saying things as it says there in verse thirty-five. He He saved others; let Him save Himself. If this is the Christ of God, His chosen one. What what blasphemy was being said here about our Lord and Savior? They're looking at this man upon this man who had done nothing. This man who had done nothing but goodness to everyone that he came into contact with, such compassion, such kindness, such love. And here they're mocking him and saying, well, he said that he saved others. If he's really the son of God, let's see him save himself. It says that the soldiers were also mocking him and coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Verse 38 tells us really of of Pilate's mockery, not, not specifically of Jesus, but of the Jewish people entirely, because he says there was an inscription above him saying, this is the king of the Jews. Pilate was pretty much fed up with what was happening. In this last kind of sense of mockery, he said, well, this is your king, and here's what I think of your king. We're going to allow him to be put upon this cross. But now notice we find what the individual criminals say. It says one of the criminals who were hanging there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, Matthew tells us in his gospel that in the very beginning, both of the criminals were doing the same thing. So Isn't it kind of ironic? Here you have these two men. They're being hung on the crosses alongside of Jesus. They're being crucified alongside of Jesus. You'd think that at any person in the crowd in that moment who might have compassion any person who might have understanding of what was taking place, it would be the two men who are experiencing the very same pain and torment that Jesus is in that moment, but yet they hurl abuse and blasphemies at Jesus. This first one, he says, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So he continues to blaspheme over and over again. He continues to rail this blasphemy about Jesus. He says, if you are the Christ, there's no demonstration here that he even believes that Jesus was who he said he was. But he just continues to hurl these wicked and blasphemous things towards Christ. Tradition tells us that this was a very common thing that would happen for criminals who were on the cross. That the longer the crucifixion went on, the more vile they would become and the things that they would say, almost as if they figured, there's nothing else they can do to me. I might as well say these things now, even to the point that it was very common practice for the soldiers to have to cut the tongues out of the people who were being crucified to keep them from hurling more abuses and more blasphemous and horrible things to the people who were gathered around. So you have this first man blaspheming the Lord Jesus, but I want you to notice what happens here. It says, but the other answered and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God since you were under the same sense of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Now, something's happened here. Because Matthew tells us in the beginning, both of them are hurling insults at Jesus. Both of them are blaspheming the Christ. But now all of a sudden this one stops. And then not only he stops hurling these things at Jesus, but then he begins to rebuke the other man. Now, what could have happened in this moment? What could he have witnessed? What could he have seen in this period of time that would cause to this man such a radical change? Go back to verse 34. It says, But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Here upon the cross, Jesus is still doing His work in the hearts and the lives of people. And here's this criminal hanging on the cross, and he's been going right along with the rest of them, hurling abuses at Jesus, saying all kinds of wicked things. And then he looks over because he sees everything that's happening. I mean, they're, they're nailed to this cross, and he sees even how much more so they're being abusive to Jesus. I mean, they had put a crown of thorns upon his head, mocking him as the king. They had put a robe around him on the way to the cross. And so when they got to the cross and they ripped this robe off, it would have just torn open the wounds that were already there. They had, had beaten him and done all of these things to him, even more so than that they had done to these criminals. And he looks over in this moment and see all of this is happening as the soldiers continue to mock him. And he hears Jesus say these words, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. All through the study of Matthew, we've been talking over and over again about the compassion of Jesus. And here in this moment, in his final hours of his life, we see that compassion of Jesus continue to be poured out because as Jesus looks out at these people, he's not angry at them for crucifying him. He's not angry at them for blaspheming him. He has compassion upon them because what are they? They're sheep without a shepherd. He has compassion upon them because he understands that what he's doing in this moment is exactly what God has called him to do. What he's doing in this moment is exactly what, before the world was even started, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit said, Jesus, you're going to go to earth. You're going to suffer and you're going to die to redeem my people back to me. And so as this man looks over, He sees this compassion and he sees this heart of Jesus. No doubt, if he had never witnessed the miracles of Jesus, he had heard of the miracles of Jesus. He had heard all the things that Christ had claimed to be and all the things that Christ had claimed to do. And he had probably never believed any of it until this very moment when he said, with all of this taking place, with everything that's happened, this man has to be different than any other person that I've ever seen, because who else but the son of God could in this moment look at all of these people doing all of these things and say, God, forgive them. We get offended if somebody does something insignificant to us. We call somebody and they don't answer their phone and we don't hear back from them until the next day. We can get a little offended, don't we? Why didn't you call me back yesterday? We can get upset about that. Our neighbor cuts his grass and he blows the grass clippings onto our lawn, right? We can get a little upset about that. There are all kinds of things that we get upset about and sometimes far more than it's worth here, these people have beaten Jesus within an inch of his life and, this, and, and hurled all kinds of insults at him. And it would be even a little different, right, if he deserved it, right? If he had committed some type of horrible crime against humanity, done some kind of evil, wicked thing, we could almost understand it. But Jesus had done nothing wrong. A perfect life, a sinless life, a life filled with love and compassion. And Jesus knew that. He knew he didn't deserve this. He knew that this was not anything that he had done in and of himself. And in that moment, Jesus looked at these people and he said, Father, forgive them. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit wrought a change in the heart of this one criminal. Because immediately he recognized who Jesus was. And that's why when he recognized who Jesus was, he rebuked the other criminal. And notice what he says. He says, do you not even fear God? What does the scripture say? It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Here in this moment, he realized who he was in comparison with who God was. He realized who he was as a sinner in need of a savior in light of who Jesus was as the Messiah, as the son of God. And in this moment, it's just so interesting to wrap your mind around that. That that by the power of the Spirit, by the power of God working, that even through the agony that this man was experiencing, that God's Spirit was still working strove strongly upon him, that this conviction was falling upon him. I mean, he, he's, he's just moments, hours, mere hours away from death. Why would he even be concerned about this, right? He's lived his life. He's done all that he wants to do. He's mere hours away from death. He's never cared about God before. But here in this moment... There's this sudden change in transformation that he suddenly realizes who he is in light of a holy God. And so he rebukes his counterpart. He says, do you not even fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And look what he says next. Because next he acknowledges his sinfulness. And brothers and sisters, this is where we all have to come. And this is what happens to every single one of us when God moves upon our heart, when we realize how holy God is and how wretched we've been. We have to acknowledge our sinfulness before God. And he says, we indeed are suffering justly. For we have received, are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. He looks at the two of them and says, listen, we deserve this. We, we committed crimes. We deserve to be punished as criminals. For we are criminals. He says, but this man has done nothing wrong. We deserve it. So he acknowledged uh, his, his, his situation before God. He acknowledged his sinfulness, but I should you to notice the third thing he does here. That he confesses the righteousness of Christ. Because he says, this man has done nothing wrong. He's putting his trust in the righteousness of Christ. The reason that this criminal knew in this moment that he could trust in Jesus was because he realized this man has done nothing wrong. This man truly is righteous. This man truly is holy. He truly is just. He truly is good. He truly is the Messiah. So he confesses that Christ is completely and totally righteous. So these are the two responses we see. One mocking, saying, are you not the Christ? And the other one responding with repentance and sorrow over his sin. The next thing I want you to notice is there are two requests. Each one of these criminals gives a request to Jesus. Notice the first one there. He says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Some commentators say you could almost call these two requests, the two prayers from the criminals. This was almost a, a sacrilegious prayer. He says, if you call yourself the Christ, save yourself and us. Do this for us. Get get us down off this cross. But what we understand in the heart of this first man is there's no repentance here. He's not sorry for anything that he's done. He just wants out of the situation. He's not broken over his sin. He's not broken over what's happening. He's not broken over the sin of his own life. He's not broken over the, uh, the wickedness that's happening to Jesus here, the unjust thing that's happening to Jesus. All he wants to do is to get down off the cross. He wants to get out of the situation that he's in. It's the same thing we saw with Judas. Remember Judas, after he had sold Jesus out for the 30 pieces of silver, he went back and he was, the scripture says that he repented, but the original word for the language there is not a true repentance. True repentance means sorrowful in the heart, sorry for what you've done, broken over your sinfulness, but there is a false type of repentance. That just means that you're sorry that you got caught. Just means you want to get out of the trouble that you're in. I always allude it this way because it's an easy illustration. When you're a little kid and you sneak into the kitchen and your mom's told you not to eat the cookies out of the cookie jar and you sneak in there anyway, you've got your hand in the jar and your mom walks back in, what do you say? Oh, I'm sorry. I won't do it again. But you're not really sorry. You would have been just as content to eat that cookie and never feel anything bad about it had your mom not walked into the room. You're only sorry because you got caught. And here's this man, he has no sorrow over his sin. All he wants to do is just get out of the consequences of his sin. His only desire is to save himself. And in fact, it's so ironic here what we see him say. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. In his mind, the only way to be saved was if Jesus got them down off the cross. But the truth of the matter is, the only way that he could really be saved is if Jesus stays on the cross. Jesus being on the cross was what was going to actually bring him the ability to truly be saved. But now notice the request of the second man. This is such a beautiful thing. Verse 42. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. In the original language, the tense of the words used here means that he basically was repeating this phrase over and over. It was the cry of his heart once he realized where he was in the light of his sin before God. And once he realized how holy Christ was and His righteousness and His mercy, the cry of his heart was just over and over to say, Jesus, remember me when You come into Your kingdom. Jesus, remember me when You come into Your kingdom. Notice here, He's not asking for him to even go there, right? in his mind, he says, I'm I'm far too wicked. I've done far too many bad things. I've, I've lived a horrible life. All I'm asking Jesus is that when you go into your kingdom, just remember who I was. Just think about me. And in his mind, that would be enough. Just for Jesus to remember who he was. It's just interesting here because you see Jesus here on the cross and both of these men are witnessing the exact same thing unfold. But one responds in utter hatred of Christ and one responds in repentance and faith. It is as Paul tells us as Christians that some we are the aroma of life unto life and some we are the aroma of death unto death. It's how the fact that when a message is preached in a church or in a revival meeting or on a street corner, that everyone there can hear the same message and some people respond in anger and hatred towards God and some people respond in brokenness and repentance and faith. This man never knew or never understood throughout the entirety of his life that he had been called and chosen of God to salvation. And it wasn't here until the final moments of his life that that calling... And that choosing of God came to fruition. There's something to be encouraged by here. As we pray for those people who we know who are lost and who are not Christians, that we don't give up, right? Now, we don't know who this man's family was. We don't know the background of his family. But we know if this man was a part of our family, that we would have spent the entirety of our lives praying for him, right? praying that God would save him, praying that God would bring him to the knowledge of who he truly was. And yet, here in this moment, almost mere moments before this man's death, God answers that prayer. And He brings this criminal to his family. The final thing I want you to understand in this passage is not only the two requests, but the two destinations. The scripture tells us that there's only one way to God. And Jesus tells us that in John chapter 14. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Which means that there's only one way to arrive at the destination that people want to get to in heaven. And that is through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot of times where people say, well, there's many, many pathways to get to God. There's many avenues to get there. But Jesus himself is the one who has said, I am the only way. It wasn't man who decided to make Christianity the exclusive of all other religions. It was God himself who laid this foundation and said there is only one way to get there. And so this first man Scripture doesn't ever give any more allusion as to what happens to him. The only, the last words that we find from this man before his death is his continual mocking and blaspheming of God. So we can safely assume that this man died in his sins as he died upon the cross for the guilt of the crimes that he had committed. But secondly, look at what Jesus responds to the second man. He says, truly, I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. There's a lot to unpack in this verse. Jesus starts there with truly. Saying you can trust what I'm about to tell you. This is not a a fabricated story. This is not an illusion. This is the truth. Truly, I say to you, with all matter of assurance, you can know what Jesus is about to say to this man is to be taken seriously. He says today, not tomorrow, not next week, not sometime in the future. He says today you shall be with me in paradise. Now, remember, this man had only asked for remembrance he, he felt incapable un, of asking for anything more. But because of the brokenness of, over his sin, because of his humility, because of his trusting in Christ, Jesus says, Today, when you leave this earth, you're going to be with me in glory. Today, you're going to be with me in heaven. This man only asked for remembrance, but what he received was fellowship with God Almighty. Can you imagine what a transformation this would have been? I can remember several years ago, I went to the funeral of David Wilkerson in New York. David Wilkerson was the one who wrote The Cross and the Switchblade and did powerful amounts of street evangelism ministry there in New York. And at his funeral, they played a clip of a sermon that he had. Because when David Wilkerson died, he died in a somewhat unexpected way. Him and his wife were in Texas on a trip and a car crossed the lane and hit them head on and killed both of them. It's a very unexpected death. And they played a clip from a sermon that he had preached several years ago where he's talking about this very idea about what it means to leave this earth. And he says, can you imagine the city, the church being there in New York? He says, you're walking down 43rd Street. He said, and everything is growing. He said, and you step off the curb and you get hit by a car. He said, and instantly you're in glory. He said, you're here and everything, you see all this around you, all the noise, all the hubbub, all the things of this world. He said, and instantly you're in glory. That's a pretty powerful transformation, right? To leave this world behind, all the cares of this world. But think about this man. This man is dying on the cross. What a transformation this man experienced to go from this pain and this torment and having lived his life in such a wicked way. And the very moment that this criminal breathed his last breath, He was in glory with God. What a powerful transition we see there. We see in these final moments, there was a man who wrote a book on on the the two criminals on the cross, and he gave a, a pretty interesting parallel between all three, between Christ and the two criminals, about where sin was. He said on the first man, excuse me, on Christ, that the sin of the world, the sins of these people were on him, but not in him. We know that Christ bore the punishment for our sins upon the cross, but Christ himself was not a sinner. He was not guilty of committing those sins. He bore the punishment for our sins because he was sinless and perfect. And on the man who repented, the sin that he committed was in him, But it was not on him. He had committed those sins, but the punishment for those sins was bore in the body of Christ as he died upon the cross. But for that last man, his sin was in him and on him. Because he had committed those sins and when he died, he had to bear the punishment for his own sin because he had not trusted in Christ. And so my question to you this morning, and looking at these two men, looking at how they responded to Christ, looking at the request that they made, looking at where they ended up, one in hell, one in heaven in paradise and glory forever with God the Father, who are you? Which one of these men are you? Are you the first man? Are you continuing to live your life in disobedience to God, continuing to live your life in rebellion against Him? And you might think this morning, well, listen, I'm not that bad. I don't do anything horrible. But brothers and sisters, it, it doesn't matter how great the world thinks your sin is or how horrible the world thinks your sin is. God says that if we've broken even one of the Ten Commandments, that we're guilty of breaking all of them. So if we've lied, we've stolen, we've cheated, we've looked with lust, we've committed adultery, we've uh, hated somebody in our heart, we've gossiped, we've slandered, all of those things are enough. Any one of those, even one time, is enough guilt to cause us to stand before God guilty and to deserve hell. If that's you this morning, today is the day that you can put your faith and trust in Christ. Today is the day that God says to you, come unto me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. May it never be said that anyone sat here this morning, heard the good news of who Christ is and what He has done, and continued in their rebellion against God. Or are you the second man? Are you here this morning and you know that you've put your faith and trust in Christ? You've turned from your sins? If so, we rejoice this morning. We rejoice in the goodness of what God has done in your life. And as we walk away this morning, let us be reminded by this joyous fact. That the compassion and the grace of our Lord was there all the way to the very end of His physical life here upon this earth. That even in these final moments when Jesus was not only bearing the physical torment of crucifixion, but also bearing the spiritual torment of taking our sins upon Himself, His compassion was so great that even in those moments... He was still drawing his people to himself. And he's still doing it today. Which person are you? Father, this morning, we thank you for this powerful testimony of these two men. And Lord, what a tragedy it would be if someone were here this morning, heard the good news of the gospel, heard the good news of Christ. Know that they are far from you. And that they would leave today without putting their faith and trust in Christ. Father, we know when the Scripture is preached, Your Word tells us that it does its perfect work in each person's heart. And Father, we also know that that perfect work is to draw Your children unto You. And so Lord, I pray this morning if there's any person here who has never put their faith and trust in Christ, that today would be that day. And Lord, for the rest of us, Lord, may we be reminded continually of what Christ has done for us. That we were like these criminals, deserving of death, deserving of punishment, deserving of all of those things because of our sin. But because of what Christ has done, we are now forgiven. Not because we're perfect, but because He's perfect. That you now see us as righteous, not because we are righteous, but because He is righteous. Lord, may we be reminded of that each and every day of our lives and walk in the joy of what it means to be your child. We ask all of these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. We prepare our hearts for communion this morning.